are into 2 Peter chapter 3. Last time we left it midway through verse 4, um, and I'm going to pick up um, uh, contextually and finish off that section. So let me read to you. I had uh, Becky, who read for us, always reads so well. She read to us from 1 Peter, where Peter is also dealing with Noah. He likes referencing Noah and the flood. It's a reoccurring theme for him. And the crescendo of it all is what we're going to be dealing with today. So I'm going to read from verses 1 through 10, <clears throat> and then we'll pray, and then we'll study. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by the means of these, uh, of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Let's pray. Father, as we <clears throat> come again to your word today, Lord, may, uh, may you bless our time. May our thoughts and thinking be clear. May your word be clear to us. May your Holy Spirit, who inspired it, illuminate it to our hearts. And if we are unclear on anything that is contained here, may you make it clear to us today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it tells us what we need to know. We thank you that it is sufficient for our needs. We thank you that it gives us what we need as we seek to live godly lives here and now. And that it gives us the assurances that we need for our future as well. May our trust in you be expressed through our receiving of your words today. Amen. Amen. Second Peter. Um, just so you know, you can tell we're in the last chapter. We've been in this for a little bit. Um, it's kind of our lockdown book, isn't it? It's been, you know, I started Second Peter the week before um, we first did lockdown, and then we kind of picked up again after uh, lockdown uh, ended. And uh, 
we're coming towards the end of it. Just, just by way of a, a kind of announcement at the start of the sermon, just so you, if you want to read ahead, I'm starting to work ahead as of now. Um, we will be doing the book of James next. And that uh, will almost bring to completion our uh, sort of Hebrew Christian epistles, the letters that were written to the Jewish believers. Um, we've done Hebrews, we've done First Peter, we've now done Second Peter. We'll do James to split up James and Jude, because uh, to split up sorry Second Peter and Jude because they're very similar. So if you want to read ahead and read James, uh, now's your time. And also, some of you had these little. Um, uh, sort of Bibles that were just the book. We've got, I think we've got first, second Peter and Jude in the one that we had. And a lot of you ordered them and they have the Bible on one page and it's blank on the other page for you to write notes. And many of you have got them and I think some of you have used them. And uh, if you want to order those for James, we need to order them re relatively soon. I don't know whether to leave it to you this time or whether you guys want to do it. So let me know if you want to. But we'll be starting James in just a matter of weeks. So um, we'll be in James um, at some point in October, God willing. So <clears throat> picking up then in this section, here we go. Um, last time we were looking at the beginning of chapter 3 and we saw specifically having come off the back of chapter 1 and the reliability of the uh, scripture and chapter 2 and the abuse of the scripture by the false teachers that the conclusion and really the whole point of the letter as he writes and he says the second letter I've written to you beloved in chapter 3 now we're coming to the fruition and that is that the false teachers are mocking people who are trusting in the return of Christ and trusting in the prophecies concerning the return of Christ. And it must have been a confusing time. So many of the Old Testament scriptures have been fulfilled at the first coming of Christ, but the vast majority of them hadn't. And Peter, in, in essence, is stating here, when he talks in verse 2 about the predictions of the holy prophets, that the ones that haven't been fulfilled are still going to be fulfilled. And my goodness, the number of Christians that would, that would get rid of some of the ridiculous notions that they have if they would just understand that. There were prophecies that happened at the, that were fulfilled at the first coming of Christ because they said things and those things happened. And then there were things that they said were going to happen that haven't happened and so they are going to happen. It's not complicated. And yet somehow there are Christians who think that somehow because Jesus has been that lots of these other things have to have already happened and we just have to sort of play around with them and twist them and spiritualize them to make that the case. We do not. Peter is here talking about prophets, uh, prophecies and predictions that are going to come. And we spoke about um, how scoffers in the last days will be scoffing. And funnily enough, I didn't mention last week, we've been going through Isaiah 28, and the passage in Isaiah that we'd actually done the previous Sunday specifically mentions scoffers scoffing in the last days. So it just goes to show, if you come out to Isaiah in the evenings, you're always going to get that little bit extra depth, and you're going to know what we're talking about in the mornings that little bit better. Um, so <clears throat> there, there is this mocking that comes, and really where we ended up last time, and this is what's so crucial, is that there is this, this understanding that is, uh, we refer to as uniformitarianism. 
Let me think after, yeah, uniformitarianism. This idea that everything just keeps on going the way it's going on. And last week in the sermon, I addressed this in three separate areas. That area number one, that we in our lives, we get up in the morning on, on, a, on a Monday perhaps, and you go to work, and you get up on Tuesday, and you go to work, you get up on Wednesday, and you go to work, and, and you, you don't realize is that at any given moment, something could happen. There could be a phone call, and something could have happened to one of your relatives. You could be involved in an accident. Something could happen, and your daily grind suddenly gets ground to a halt. Everything changes. You could have a diagnosis. You could suddenly have a heart attack, as a friend of mine did a couple of years ago, just walking around Walmart with his family, boom. Next thing he knows, he's waking up in hospital with a pacemaker. Life just changes, boom, like that. And secondly, on a, on a more medium-term scale, as we discover, we are, I don't even talk to you about this, you're all living through 2020. You think that, you know, well, that will happen. last year this happened, and that year before that happened, and I mean, it'll, be, you know, it'll be different stuff, but it'll be fairly similar in 2020. Oh, 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 oh. oh, yes, 2020. We will always look back, won't we? I imagine in 15 years' time, I'll be saying, man, this week's going all 2020 on us, isn't it? It'll, it, it's just going to be something that we'll always remember and just how we thought life was and how it just so dramatically changes. What Peter is dealing with in this conclusion of his book is that this is true on a large long-term scale as well. And that's really where we left it, and we talked about it a bit, but I do want to go through it in more detail in the context of Genesis that he's referring to. And he's talking about this uniformitarianism, this idea that life just keeps on going the way it's going, keeps on going, keeps on going, and doesn't allow for the fact that there are points in human history where everything changes. And, and I suppose in between medium and long term, and I made reference to America and how you know, people in America think it's just going to keep going, but America's quite a young nation. You know, I think I made reference to the fact there was a castle just down the road from where we lived that outdates your modern, the modern nation of America by, by several centuries, you know. It, it's, you know, life is long, centuries go by, you know. Think of old Methuselah, 969 years, how much he saw in that time, how much things changed. But he didn't see change like some after him saw change. It's fascinating when you look at the long length of people in the Bible. I was um, looking at this just the other day. Um, that Methuselah, we know, 969 years, very, very long. But the other one who's incredibly long is Shem, son of Noah, Shem. And he has this incredible lifespan. And obviously Shem was on the ark, so he was born prior to the flood, right? And he was there... <clears throat> For the flood, he was there after the flood, and he was there for Abraham, and he was there for Isaac, and he was there for Jacob. And he lived this, this incredibly long life relative to his peers. Everybody else post-flood is starting to die much more quickly, and Shem kind of stands out. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but for, for a long, long time, many, many centuries, many centuries more than Abraham. And you just think of the changes that Shem saw. You know, there are people here who would have been excited at seeing the first TV set in their house. Who are now, some of them perhaps even live streaming us as we speak, on a telephone. Many of us remember, you know, t 
turning telephones with our fingers. You know, there are people who've lived just through astonishing changes in life. Nothing compared to Shem. What Peter is referring to here, and let's look at the text, let's get right into it and look at it. He's saying here, and we'll go back to some of the details in verse 4 and 5, but he said they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, earth was formed out of water, through the water, by the word of God, and that by, mean, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. The world that existed perished. It's gone. The world that existed perished. I want you to understand that world. When Adam and Eve were created, Adam gave them, uh, God gave Adam and Eve food. And Adam was to tend the garden. The food they had was fruit from trees. They just ate fruit. That's what they ate. The introduction of other things comes more later on, particularly post-flood. But prior to the flood, they were able to live off fruit. The reason that they were able to is because as well as there being water below, there was water above. And there was a canopy that probably gave the earth a tropical type of climate, and there's plenty of fossil evidence to support that. And... And so there was water above and there was water below. And I don't mean the seas, I mean water below below. And when the flood happened, it wasn't just that it rained a lot. There was a canopy of water that affected the climate of the earth that came down. There was, a, there was water below the earth that came up. And there was shaking and geographical changes that happened. The entire world geographically was changed. The entire world geologically was changed. The structure of the world was changed. The climate of the world was changed. And that's not even the main bit. Not only was the life of man in the sense of diet changed because of the change of climate, but lifespan changes. Methuselah, whose name suggests that perhaps he was um, the epitome of God's patience, is the man who lived longer than anybody else in Scripture. As I said, 969 years. And he died as the flood began, suggesting the patience of God in that matter. And he, he was there and he saw these things going on in his world. And the world ends with Methuselah. The world comes to a close. And what Methuselah would have seen in the time leading up was a world that was very different than the one we have. We've already seen in 2 Peter and in 1 Peter, and those who've been with us in Isaiah, the references to Genesis 6, that the sons of God dwelt with the daughters of men and they created this sort of demonic human offspring called the Nephilim that were mighty men of renown that, that populated the earth. I mentioned a few weeks ago when we were dealing with that in Second Peter, and I won't go back and do it all over again, but there is much Jewish mythology that predates Christ where they taught about these Nephilim creatures. It is only in the modern era that people have said, that sounds weird, maybe we shouldn't believe that. That historically people did. I won't even get into all the stuff you can read about fossil records of giant beings and stuff. I'll leave that for your own flights of fancy. But let's just leave it at this that there was an understanding that transcended culture for, for millennia that these creatures existed, that the sons of God brought knowledge to the world, 
to the degree of metalwork, jewellery, and even cosmetology, and that these creatures were fearsome and even cannibalistic. And <clears throat> when God wiped out the world with the flood, the teaching of Genesis 6 implies that the Nephilim, these demonic hybrids, that they are directly connected to God flooding the earth. Some people teach, and I'm not convinced of this, but I'm open to it, that when it speaks about Noah being righteous, he and his family, that perhaps they were the only ones who had pure, demon, uh, pure uh, human DNA going back to Adam, and that the Nephilim had so corrupted the world that it, it just the world was chaos. To quite to what degree the genetics of the world were impacted, remember the world that was told that the seed of the woman would be the one that would redeem mankind. If you don't have pure human seed, you do not have that anymore. That prophecy can't be fulfilled. But also just chaos. Giants around the world, people living in fear, just all sorts of things going on. Sin has multiplied. Just this world that is just to us like something out of a sci-fi movie. Man, it would make a good movie, wouldn't it? It's just bizarre to us. It just seems crazy. I know someone's done one, but it wasn't a good one. I mean a good one, a biblical one. Um, but my point is this. That world was totally different to any world that we knew. You, nobody had eaten, no, you know, no one other than people in sin had eaten meat. You were living off a fruit diet. You're living in a tropical climate. You've, you've got the world now starting to erupt. You know, here's God saying you can, eat, you can only eat fruit. You're eating the fruit. You're trying to be obedient. And there's giants running around eating people. I mean, it's just a crazy world. And then God sends the flood. Boom. Reboot. Everything changes. In other words, you think that life that you know is just going to go on and on and on, and you forget that it used to be completely different. And, and you are thousands of years after Peter's writing, and Peter's audience is thousands of years after something that he references. Look at the text with me. Verse 4. They will say, this is the scoffers who will scoff in the last day following their own sinful desires. We spoke about that last time. Where is the promise of his coming? Again, in the extreme form, they, they deny the return of Christ at all. But we see that as with chapter 2, there are more minor denials just at the ridiculousness of what they see in the prophecies. Because it's so different than our world today. Where is the promise of his coming? Here we go. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Okay. Since the fathers fell asleep. Who are the fathers? It's not the fathers of the people he's writing to. The fathers would be the, the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And he's saying basically... Since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, everything's just been going on. Now, before you think that he's saying, well, things were very, very different after the flood. I mean, complete everything changed. But, you know, since the patriarchs, things have just cracked on. Just, they've just been, you know, they haven't changed hugely 
as, you know, as much as they did before the flood. That's not what the scoffers are saying. That's very, very clear. They're saying that things continue as they have since the beginning of creation. So they're not saying that. So what are they saying? I think what they're saying is this, is that since the time of the patriarchs, people have said, well, like, this is just life. This is just how it is. This is how it's always been. In other words, people had forgotten about the flood while Shem was still alive. Get your heads around that. Isn't that just ridiculous? Shem lived through the flood, was on the ark, came out the other side, and he was alive, and he outlived Abraham, and he outlived Isaac, and he may have even outlived Jacob. He was certainly alive when Jacob was alive. And people are saying that at that time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that at that time, people were already saying, well, this is just how it's always been. People want to forget about the judgment of God. As Christians, we love it when people talk about the mercies of God, the goodness of God. When people start talking about the judgment of God, we get uncomfortable. Christians in recent eras have tried to, more strongly since about the 19th century, tried to get rid of the doctrine of hell. These, some of these things are uncomfortable to us. Why? Because we, like them, want to forget about the judgment of God, don't we? We just want to go through our lives, you know? We, can want, to, we want to sing. Our sins, they are great, but his mercy is more. We want to sing it again and again and again. We don't want to sing about, you know, the flood judging the world. Have you ever read the Psalms recently? Go and read how many references to judgment are in the Psalms. Maybe we should have a little campaign to have more judgment in our songs. You, you laugh, but I tell you, the Psalms are full of that stuff. And Jen says to me, she says, what are you preaching in two weeks' time? Can we have some songs that might kind of go well with that? And I'm like, yeah, just pull out all your songs so that to do with God flooding the world and bringing down fire from heaven. She says, don't have too many of those. You songwriters, there's your mission for the week. So anyways... That's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with people who historically have said for a long, long, long time, from incredibly early on, it never happened. It never happened. Life has just gone on as it has since creation. And as we saw last time in verse 5, the overlooking of this is deliberate. They, over, they deliberately overlook this. And the only other thing in verse 5, before we move on, that I didn't pick up on last time as we were kind of just wrapping that up, I said we'd come back to it. I want you to look at some of the details here. He says that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. In other words, that water was part of creation, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters of the deep, but the creation also happened through the word of God. So there's the, the, the physical aspects of creation, and water was somehow involved in that. And there is God, by his word, causing it to happen. Okay? And then he goes on and, and says, and that by means of these. Now the these that he's just referenced are the water and the word. 
Okay? So by means of these, water and word, the world that then existed, existed was deluged with water and perished. In other words, the water that the world is associated with was part of what brought judgment, destroyed it, destroyed the world that then existed. But also, what's the other thing that's contained in these? The word of God. That God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let's separate the waters from the land, and it was separated. And God said, let us bring down the waters from above, and let's bring up the waters from below, and let's get rid of this. God said. And that's the God we worship. God of life, a God of creation, a God of salvation, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of love, a God of empathy, a God of compassion, and a God of long-suffering. But a God of righteousness, a God of justice, a God of judgment. And a God who is going to be as glorified through his judgments as he is through saving others from those judgments. It's by his word the judgment came. And that then leads us to verse 7. And this is really where we're picking up properly. And this is the flow that we've just seen. But by that same word. You see the connection? The word of God creates. The word of God brought the flood. And by that same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist... Remember there was an earth that used to exist? It operated a way that seemed strange to us and it went perished. There's a world now that exists. And yes, it's changed a lot. Some of you, you know, I grew up without the internet. Some of you grew up without TV. People before that grew up without electricity. People before grew up without factories in agrarian societies. But in other senses, the world hasn't changed that much, not compared to how it was before the flood. And what is he saying here? He's saying this world, the heavens and the earth that now exist, by that same word, are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. God, right now, by his word, is keeping this current situation. The heavens and the earth, how we see it, how it is. You look up in the morning and there's the sun, and at night there's the moon, and the moon goes through cycles, and we get strange times when it hits 112 degrees, is it out there, 13 degrees today? We get some... We get fluctuations and we get like periods of hotter weather and we get kind of mini ice ages and we get, we get variations but life kind of goes on we don't have giants running around eating people we don't we don't have a world where it has never rained we don't have a world where there is a canopy above we we, we live in, we live in a time that that is there and God just protects it and preserves it. But just as God one day said, let me make this world, and just as God one day said, let me end this world and bring down the flood, God now allows this world to exist. And there is a day coming when God says, it's time. This world 
what we consider to be normality is coming to an end. And as I spoke to you at length about last time, friends, that's why people reject the book of Revelation, because it seems ridiculous to them. That's why they reject the plain reading of Old Testament prophecies, because it sounds ridiculous to them. You know why it sounds ridiculous? Because it is so completely different, because everything is going to change. And there is one difference this time round, that the change will not happen by water. It will happen by fire. The earth will be scorched. To what degree is that literal fire that will be upon the earth? To what degree is it as it is Peter who is writing, who speaks about the, the fire of judgment and the fire that will purify? Who's to say? But it's certainly, whether we take it literally or not, is, is a figure that paints a picture that should have people trembling. What people should tremble? Well, I think that becomes clear at the end of verse 7, does it not? They're being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. It's the ungodly who are going to be destroyed. This is one of the main reasons where, why I am... Um, pre-tribulational in my theology. I do believe that the church are not going to go through this judgment upon the earth. When the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, we'll talk more about this in a minute, comes, we won't be here. If it starts tomorrow, we won't be here. Why? Because it's a destruction for the ungodly. You say, well, I look in Revelation, I see saints being martyred. Absolutely. Because in the midst of that destruction, a merciful God will take some of those ungodly and will open their eyes and bring salvation to them. But his bride will be long gone. And so we come to verse 8. And we're going to get some context to this judgment and we'll talk uh, about this judgment more, but let's get the context for it that I think is so important. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. If you're one of those people that likes to take these verses and start to work out when the end's going to come, stop it! Let me talk to you like I might talk to a child who just keeps on picking his toenails or his spots or something. Stop! Leave it alone! Leave it alone! Gosh, I see it all the time. Christians, it'll be, well, if a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day, well, then the creation happened here, and then this, 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 this. 1988, 1990, 2000, and, and they've all been wrong, and you're going to be wrong too, and you're not supposed to do it, and even Jesus doesn't know the day of his coming, in, according to Matthew's Gospel, and, and you wouldn't be the one that would work it out. No offence. Stop it. We don't know. The key word here is as, as a thousand days. It's not saying that a day is, is a thousand years represents a day, six days of creation, then the thousand year kingdom. That's what I'm referring to if you didn't get the reference. People, some people are really into that stuff, you know, and all this date setting nonsense. Just stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. Okay? It's saying a thousand years is as a day. 
and a day is as a thousand years, like it, similes. If you're struggling with this, you need an English teacher to help you out rather than a theologian. Okay, it's just a comparison. And, and the reason for this is this, that, that God is the creator of time. God stands outside of time. God sees the creation of the world as clearly as he sees the day of judgment. We are slaves to time. We're slaves to time. This is why we're fascinated by time travel movies and books and TV shows. Because, because this whole idea of jumping through, it's just fascinating to us. Because we are just slaves to time. They say that, the, that uh, youth is wasted on the young. Because those of us who are older, boy, do we not want to go back and do things differently than we did? Would things not look different if with the benefit of hindsight we could redo and relive? But we can't, and we never will, because we're slaves to time. But God is the creator of time. If you do something, then that act is done, and what follows, follows. You're a slave to time. You can look at what happened in the past, but you can't see what's going to happen in the future. You're a slave to time. But God is outside of time, the creator of time, and he spoke to his prophets and said, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and, and this is going to happen. I, I know, I know, I know, no, yeah, no, I did mean that. I know it sounds crazy, but that's going to happen. And that's going to happen. Yeah, I know it's ridiculous, but yeah, that's going to happen. Because he sees. He sees the beginning and he sees the end. And so here we are, you know, saying, well, Jesus came 2,000 years ago. Is he ever coming back? The Apostle Paul was hopeful that he would come back in his lifetime. Every generation subsequently has wanted him to come back in his lifetime. I, can, I won't name and shame, but I could tell you several prominent evangelical teachers, both who have died in, the la in my lifetime and who are still alive now, who think that the rapture will happen in their lifetime. And the ones obviously who died were wrong. <laughs> The reality is, is that it just seems like we're waiting forever and ever and ever. I'm not the best person, really, to be lecturing people on this. My wife has been driven by me so many times that she knows what I'm referring to here. It's a case of, darling, we're not in a rush. It doesn't matter. You have to go from that lane to this lane and this lane to that lane. Patience. Doesn't driving expose it? Oh, my goodness. There's a reason I don't have a fish bumper sticker. Let's just leave it at that. Anywho, there, uh, there, is, there is an issue that we have with patience, because we're sinners, and there's an issue that we have with time, because we can't see. And God has neither. And so for God, he sees the beginning and the end. He sees how these things pan out. And so to him, it is not a wait he is not being slow. The Lord is not slow, verse 8, to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. He's not slow. There's a reason, by the way, that the word 
trust in the Bible is so often communicated, or the, so the concept of trust is so often communicated in the Bible by the word wait. That's how we show our trust, by just waiting. Because God's not slow. What is he? Literally, he is very long-nosed. He's got a big nose. In Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, the idiom for being very long-suffering and patient is to be long of nose. God is long of nose. He is patient. He is long-suffering. You see, some people are saying, and the false teachers are saying, that because Christ hasn't come back, because God hasn't returned, God, you're just leaving us in this situation, and the people are opposed to the people of God, and there's people in this nation who are suffering, and we're crying out to you, and come quickly, Lord Jesus. Why haven't you returned? And the reason is, is simply this. Patience. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Now hear this. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all, that all should reach repentance. Now most of you know that I am broadly speaking a Calvinist, Calvinistic. MacArthur once famously called himself a leaky dispensationalist, and I think it's probably good to call myself a leaky Calvinist. I think that's, uh, that I'm not maybe as strict as some. But I tell you this, in our circles, because I know many of you hold similar views, you've got to embrace passages like, not just wrestle with them, embrace them. You've got to embrace them. God does not want anyone to perish and wants all to come to repentance. And you can be Calvinistic and embrace passages like this, and you must be. You have to embrace these passages. Rather than wrestle them away and, and avoid them and, and find them awkward, you just got to... You, you know, this, and this is why I, I offend so many people on both sides of, the, of these issues, is that I, I just, I just want to be instructed by the Bible, and I want to come to the Bible, and I just want to put my knees down and say, just to speak, Lord. And, and right here, right now, do I believe that God sovereignly chooses us before the foundation of the world? Yes, I, I do. Do I believe that God chooses and elects? Absolutely. But I'm going to stand before this verse, I'm going to bow down and say, God desires that every single one should be saved. And some people will say, both sides will say, well, how can you say both? Because the Bible does. Because God does. And that's good enough for me. But let's, let's not just accept this, let's embrace it. Okay? God is allowing all sorts of horrible things happen to his people. He's resisting the cries of his people to come back because he is patient with those who hate him that he might save them. Is that an example that we're prepared to follow? That we would endure, that we would be patient, that we would suffer for the opportunity of salvation for people who hate us. One of the biggest problems with the churches in America getting more and more political is that there is less and less patience and desire for salvation to those who hate us.
God sets the model for how we treat people who hate us because we used to hate him. And yet his son died for us even while we were his enemies. Romans 5. And so I this week have been deeply challenged by this verse, by this passage. That in the context of righteous judgment, in the context of God saying it is right and it is just and it is godly that fire would come down and judgment would come upon the ungodly, but not yet. Because I want them to be saved. I want them to repent. I want them to turn. Paul in Romans 9 10 and 11, dealing with the Jewish issue, talks about similar things. He talks about this reality of people who, um, of the Jews, and them being rejected by God, and them being blinded. And it says that God is going to turn things around. It says, uh, I want to read to you a little part of it. He says, Romans 11, verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. We dealt with that verse just just a few weeks ago in Isaiah. For God right now has blinded Israel that they predominantly, with very few exceptions, cannot see the reality of Jesus as Messiah. And you're like, why would you do that? Paul's wrestling with that. Paul's saying in chapter 9, do you know, if only I, I would give up my salvation that my people would be saved, why are they in this kind of blindness? It grieves my heart that they're, that they're blinded and they can't see the gospel. And God says, well, I'm using it as an opportunity to bring in the Gentiles and their time will come when the fullness of Gentiles has come in and then we will deal with Israel's sin and then we will save them all then I will complete the promises that I made to them. And so it is, is that God now is in the business of saving Gentile souls. He's in the business of building his church. And, you know, as Christians, we again and again are, oh, Lord, we your people, we, you know, there's, there's, this, there's this going on and there's that going on. And come, Lord Jesus, come, come, come. How would we have felt about Christians crying for Christ to return retrospectively before we were saved? I desperately want Jesus to come back (laughs) more than I ever have at any time in my life. And I'm not talking about day-to-day events or things as flimsy as that. Just as they get to see him more As I get to know him better, I'm just like, Lord, come. Lord, just come. And yet the fact that he didn't come yesterday means that somebody else, many other people, will now be with him when he does come. It's the long-suffering of God 
There are those out there that we pray for who hate God. They don't dislike him. They don't dismiss him. They actively hate him. God has a good track record with saving people like that. They may be the politicians that you pray for because you should. Scripture commands us to. They may be your family members who you dearly want to be saved but loathe the God you love. They may be your friends. They may be your neighbours and your colleagues. I want Jesus to come back but every day he doesn't is an opportunity. Every day he doesn't is more time for us to cry out for those souls, to plead with him for those souls, that they might be amongst the fullness of those who would come in. Now with that as a very important contextual issue in regards to judgment, that just as Methuselah lived so long before the flood, so God's long suffering is seen in his lack of returning thus far. Then in verse 10, we're told, but, here's a contrast, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. I said this last time, you know, we don't, thieves don't make appointments. Sorry to have missed you today, Mr. Forsyth, but I came to your house to pick up your TV set. Your door was locked. Uh, I'm going to come back tomorrow at 2 o'clock if you would just leave it, the door unlocked. Preferably just leave the TV outside the front door. Save me the hassle. Then I'd appreciate your assistance in this matter. It's not how thieves work. Not, what, not, not how it happens. They, they turn up unannounced. They turn up when you're away. They turn up in the night. They turn up unexpectedly. And so it will be with the day of the Lord. And can I just say, and I, and I know I've mentioned this a few times here and there, but one thing in our circles that really bugs me is Christians calling Sunday the Lord's Day. Just, just stop it. There is, there is an expression in the Bible, the Lord's Day, the Day of the Lord. That's the same thing, genitive, Day of the Lord, the Lord's Day. And it comes like a thief. I know when Sunday's coming next. I've got a calendar. We're on Sunday today, and we're going to be on it again Seven days' time. Yeah, who's a slave to time now, huh? And then in another seven days, we'll be on Sunday again. It's not coming like a thief. It's coming down on schedule, just like, boom, right on the mark. There it is. Sunday. And again, and again, and again. Day of the Lord. <sighs> Listen, the day of the Lord is an expression. It's a biblical expression for a day that God is associated with. Now, hear this well. It is a day that we've seen in Isaiah 28. It's called the day of Jehovah's strange deeds, his strange works, his strange acts. It's a day of Jacob's trouble. It's the day of judgment here in this passage. It is a day, it is a time, it is a moment. Not a literal 24-hour day, but a period of time that has been earmarked as the day where God shows up and says, Enough. My nose is only so long. I have brought in those I will bring in. And the time has come to redeem Israel, to complete my work on this earth. And fire 
will come and judgment will come. That is the day of the Lord. It will come like a thief. It will not be announced. And he says, then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What does that mean? I don't know. But it sure ain't going to be normal and whatever it is, is going to sound very ridiculous to us right now. I'll tell you what I do know. The heavenly bodies almost certainly refers to the, the, the elements, sun, moon, stars. Does that mean there are going to be literally stars disappearing? Possibly. Certainly the Bible speaks in terminology of, of, of how things are perceived and viewed. We talk about the sun rising and the sun setting. It doesn't mean that we're, the Bible is, is telling us that the, the earth doesn't revolve around the sun. It's just it's, it's a question of perspective. From the perspective of the earth, there will be changes in the heavenly realms. Sun, moon and stars. You're used to the sun rising, the sun setting, the sun rising, the sun setting. Life is going to change in a way as dramatic or perhaps more dramatically than things changed from the time of the waters above and the waters below, the eating of the fruit, the Nephilim, the tropical climate, the people living for almost a thousand years. Things are going to change more than that when God says enough. When God says, now it's my day, now it's my time, now I'm going to come in and I'm going to make all things right. And I will judge the ungodly and I will take away my people and I will redeem the earth and I will redeem my people Israel and I will com complete the work that I set out to do and fulfill the promises that I made. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Everything that was hidden will be revealed. Everything that we do that we think doesn't matter. People go about and they live their lives and they think that, you know, well, it doesn't matter if I do this and that. There's a day coming when you'll realize that it did. We live in a time, like Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 5, where he says... Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. We live in those kind of days again right now. And people think that they're doing good when they're doing evil. And they're prepared to persecute, shut up, clamp down upon all those who would stop them from enjoying their sin and proclaiming the right to do their sin and living the way they want. Christians will be more and more hated as sin is more and more promoted. And they think that it doesn't matter. They think we believe in some fairy in the sky. Where is this Jesus of yours that I'm supposed to believe in? And one day, unannounced, unexpected, like a thief, God will show up. The ungodly will be judged. And everything, everything will change. The world will become a place that looks utterly ridiculous to us. 
and you look, look at Revelation, you see water drying up, water turning to blood, you see mountains falling down, you see angels flying through the heavens proclaiming the gospel, you see people murdering Christians en masse and celebrating it. And you think, man, does it, it doesn't literally mean that, does it? Yes, it does. It'll happen. It sounds ridiculous, but everything will change. And God will expose everything. People who shield their evil in terms of, oh, I'm being good, really. No, no, it'll be shown to be really evil. And those who are seeking to do the Lord's will, it will shown to be good. You see, when Jesus comes back at the end and he separates the sheep from the goats, he'll look at their works and it'll be clear. Because the earth and the works upon it will be exposed. What then for us? I'm not going to be there. Jesus will come for me before he brings down fire. As Noah was on the ark before the rain began, so I will be with my Savior. You will be with your Savior before the fire comes down. Does that mean that it has no effect on us? Oh no, it does. And that's what we're going to look at next time in verse 11. But for now, let us be thankful for the Lord that we have. Let us be thankful that he saved us. Let us be thankful for his long-suffering. Let's pray and then let's take communion together. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is so patient and so long-suffering. Everything is going to change. But for now it goes on. Not because you don't care, but precisely because you do. I thank you that you didn't come back before you saved me. And I pray that you would save so many others before you do. Why don't we just, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, to coin a phrase, just let's take a moment in our hearts and let's bring before the Lord family, friends, people of significance that that don't know him. Let's take an opportunity for his patience. Let's just do that for a minute. Thank you for your patience. And Lord, those we have lifted before you, be they parents, be they children, friends, loved ones, God have mercy. We know that we are praying according to your will when we cry out for their souls. For you desire that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Amen.